This is Growing the Valley, a podcast by the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Miller, Orchard Systems Advisor for Butte, Tehama, and Glen Counties. I'm your other host, Phoebe Gordon, Orchard Systems Advisor for Madera and Merced Counties. Today on the podcast, we are taking on the topic of groundwater recharge, specifically recharging aquifers by flooding agricultural fields during the winter. And to discuss this, we're talking with the expert on the subject, Dr. Helen Dalkey of UC Davis. Helen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Helen, could you introduce your full title and what your lab at UC Davis does? I'm an associate professor in integrated hydrologic sciences in the Department of Land, Air, and Water Resources here at UC Davis. I have been working here in California since spring 2013, and my lab has been mainly focusing on using agricultural fields for recharging groundwater aquifers, which we often call agricultural managed aquifer recharge. We do a lot of field experiments to really understand the processes and how to integrate this practice with general agricultural production. Excellent. And so you came to UC Davis in the midst of terrible drought. So was it the drought that got you interested in researching groundwater recharge or how did you get started on this journey? Yeah, I was actually not hired to go into this research topic and I actually have more watershed hydrology, surface water background. I did my PhD, for example, on phosphorus transport in upstate New York. But when I came here in the first year, I talked to a lot of people. And together with some colleagues, we actually worked on a so-called uh, virtual water tour of California. So a series of little recorded videos that talked about water in California. And through that process, I learned about water issues in California, particularly groundwater overdraft. At the same time, talking to Dan Putnam, and he discussed with me the issue of tailwater management. So when you're flooding alfalfa fields with flood irrigation, often there's like little ponded water on the low slope side. And he was asking for solutions of what to do with that water. And I said, why didn't you recharge it? Put it somewhere on a field to get it underground. And eventually, two came together. And at the same time, we saw some of the work that Don Cameron, general manager of Terra Nova Ranch, was putting forward. And he really boldly went ahead and just flooded several of his own fields, some planted with pistachio wine grapes. And I thought that was a great approach to tackle the problem of groundwater overdraft. That is just so fitting with what I see in agriculture that you get somewhere with a mix of ideas and questions coming from UC. So like you say, with Dan Putnam, our alfalfa specialist at UC Davis, posing this problem of the tailwater at the end of the field, but also there's so much progress in agriculture that comes from grower innovation and growers trying things themselves. So as you set out to research this, what are some of the questions that you had right away and what have some of the answers that have been coming back? Yeah, it's a really a multifaceted problem because groundwater recharge is something you can really do everywhere. And so one of the first questions we tackled was, 
What are good locations to do this? You can't necessarily put water on the slope. It would immediately run down hills. One of the reasons why we like to encourage groundwater recharge here in the Central Valley is because it's such a nice flat area to do this. And the other idea was, of course, using agricultural fields because we do have quite a bit of agricultural land in the Central Valley and not so much natural landscapes that could be utilized for the purpose. So this is where, for example, agriculture and managed aquifer recharge, the intentional recharge of groundwater came together. So yeah, the early research was focused on finding suitable locations and, of course, addressing concerns of growers who how to integrate that with cropping systems and particularly perennial crops like almond pistachios or wine grapes, how to integrate that with those production systems that you really cannot remove in the winter. They are staying put, but often are dormant. And so we were looking into when to recharge the water and are there any negative effects, even if the crop is in dormancy. In the more recent years, our funding has shifted a little bit more into the water quality realm, because when flooding farm fields that receive regular fertilizers, like synthetic fertilizer, as well as pesticides, there are concerns around leaching nitrate, salts, pesticides to the groundwater. And so many of our ongoing projects are investigating these types of processes and how to, for example, reduce nitrate leaching to groundwater. That is fabulous work. And like you say, it's just so multifaceted, lumping those into three pillars. The first pillar being, where can you do this? And that's something I've been concerned about with the Sacramento Valley. We just have so much clay, a lot of heavy textured soils. And thankfully, you've done this great work with Toby Jean, who we've had on the podcast before, where growers can go and look up the maps of good spots for potential groundwater recharge. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And then the second realm of your research, how does this work in the field? Are the trees or you know whatever crop you're doing this in, are they damaged by flooding during the winter to get recharged? Working with folks like Ken Shackle on that type of research. And then the third pillar with the water quality question, Okay, so you can do it in almonds, but we fertilize almonds heavily. So what's the nitrate risk there? We have the maps. Do you want to get into a little bit of what you found on the impacts on fields where you flooded? Yeah, so the the second pillar you mentioned was which crops might be tolerant to receive more water in the winter for recharge. We have partnered with the Almond Board of California and UCANR, who funded several of my projects, actually. We've flooded some almond orchards in the Central Valley with a conservative amount of two acre feet per acre in January. So really in the middle of the winter when the almonds are dormant. And we did not really see a negative effect on yield. How much water you can recharge in almonds depends, again, on what soil type you have, particularly the soil texture and infiltration rate that soil can support. If you have the sand, it goes much quicker. And then any potential risks on the root system due to maybe reduced oxygen conditions in the root zone are often mitigated. But you can even do it in slightly finer textured soils. 
If you do, for example, pulsed water application, so a small amount of water, six inches at a time or so, and then give it some time to drain and then apply more water. The one caution we have with almonds is they're one of the early bloomers. So typically almonds start blooming around Valentine's Day, mid-February. And so the time window to really do this recharge, particularly with respect to water availability, is a fairly short one. So this is why we also started looking into other crops like alfalfa or grapes. We have currently studies underway on grapes, and they seem to be also very tolerant to the practice. And so is alfalfa, even in the warmer climates. That's really, really important research and an important caveat there with almonds blooming so early. So it's great that you've been able to see that conservatively. Two acre feet, perhaps you could potentially do much more than that. Turning to that third pillar of water quality, it seems like there are some pros and cons that pop up right away. There's a lot of regulation in the Central Valley surrounding nitrate. We don't want nitrates in our drinking water, so that risk of pushing nitrates into the aquifer. But the potential benefit of we don't want to build up salts in our root zone either, and it would be really nice to be both recharging and leaching out the salts. What have some of the results for this third pillar been so far, which I know is a very active part of your research program? Yeah, it's really a complex topic. So on the risk of pushing more nitrate into the groundwater aquifer, you flood a farm field maybe with like six inches or a foot of water and you keep applying it continuously maybe for a week or two. We can definitely say the main effect, because of that large amount of water and the fact that nitrate, for example, is so soluble, you really transport it, you leach it very easily from the root zone and you move it to the groundwater table. But that does not necessarily change the mass of nitrate that is already in the subsurface. So Most of what we're pushing with this process is actually historic nitrate that has built up from years and years of fertilizer applications. So the main effect that we see here now is that you actually really just accelerate the whole transport of nitrate from the unsaturated zone to the groundwater table, meaning it likely arrives quicker at the groundwater table than under normal irrigation if we wouldn't do the recharge. But it would have gotten there anyways. With a couple more years, most likely in normal irrigation cycles, you would see that nitrate arrive at the groundwater table. But yes, we do have the opportunity, particularly when we use clean water for recharge, like nice snowmelt water from rivers that are coming from the Sierra Nevada mountains that are often very low in nitrate. They might pick up a little bit in the canals or from overland flow from other fields that are coming into the river. But generally, that water is fairly clean. So the more we are actually recharging that clean water, you will see eventually a plume of clean water also arriving at the groundwater table. And that could be a long-term benefit of doing and expanding recharge activities. We would even see a greater effect of this if we actually don't flood agricultural fields, but just use normal infiltration basins or designated land parcels that are used for infiltration and recharge over and over and over again, because then you wouldn't have frequent fertilizer applications. 
But often we can't take that much land out of production and just put infiltration basins everywhere. It would also not be economically feasible to do this, particularly if we think of a wet year like 2017, where we had so much precipitation. We just were looking for a very large land area to capture a lot of that water that was coming by. So there are potential benefits, and we have some indicators that it's working because, for example, most rural communities in the Central Valley, particularly the communities that are using groundwater as a drinking water supply, often they have issues with contaminated groundwater. But there have been some communities that were located right next to an infiltration basin that has received snowmelt water every year for recharge, and they don't have contamination issues in their wells. So the recommendation we have actually with our recharge programs is for GSAs, groundwater sustainability agencies, or water districts to decide when they do put in an infiltration basin, a new one, please put it somewhere near a disadvantaged community to potentially help keep the well water in their domestic wells clean. This is incredibly fascinating. The two paths and potentially going down both paths at the same time groundwater recharge in agricultural fields. One of the things I learned in school was that dilution is the solution. And as you say, you could have the plume of nitrates move deeper, but if you keep recharging in subsequent years with clean water, you could continually improve the quality of the groundwater. And then the other path with recharging on ground that is never fertilized, its sole intent is to be a place in wet winters where you can recharge, can have such a tremendous benefit if it's near where you're pumping for drinking water. Mm -hmm. um, and that point about disadvantaged communities is really key. But the issue there is that there's land in California is really expensive and there's only so much acreage we can do that on. What have you seen since you've started this research in terms of grower implementation or some real world outcomes? The growers that we have mainly worked with in our field experiments, many of these experiments are fairly small scale, just because often we didn't have a wet winter, we didn't have water available for research, so we did experiments with pumped groundwater. Really not ideal. At the beginning, when I started with this research, there were a lot of growers really not supportive of these types of activities, but I've definitely seen a switch in their mindset that for many of them are actually accepting recharge as one of the management mechanisms that we have available to potentially flatten out the water supply so it's not as variable as it is just purely due to variability and precipitation. But it's also something that, of course, the groundwater sustainability agencies are pushing more and more for as part of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. So... The Public Policy Institute of California did a very interesting study looking at the submitted groundwater sustainability plans that have been submitted by various GSAs. And many of them are proposing to use managed aquifer recharge to address the overdraft by capturing more excess water. And many of these proposals do go back to using classic infiltration basins but the on-farm recharge is often sort of the backup method, and particularly for the extreme wet years like 2017, where we really have an abundance of water available in a short amount of time. 
you just need really hundreds or thousands of acres to flood and get that water into the ground. At that point, most infiltration basins are full at capacity and can't take any more water in. So what alternative do we really have besides flooding the landscape? I've received reports from farmers that they said, well, I recharged 30,000 acre-feet on my land in 2017, but we don't necessarily have instrumentation out to really prove that. I see. Going forward, what do you see as some of the major barriers to having more groundwater recharge in California? Is that a problem with infrastructure and having the canals and things to get the water that comes in such a short burst to places where it can recharge? Is it with policy? What are some of those barriers? Yeah, I think there's multiple hurdles. And the type of hurdle more or less depends on where you are and what your plan is on accomplishing recharge. There is still a fairly large percentage in the farming community that still says, not on my land. Because yes, you are taking a risk, particularly if you have perennial crops on your land. So there is still that question in flooding crops and potentially having only half the yield of what you had last year. But there are also definitely infrastructure hurdles. Most of our surface water conveyance system has not been built for conveying flood water. It has been built for delivering water at little amounts, little sips as we need them for irrigation. We've also had to deal with an aging infrastructure like the Frying Current Canal or the California Aqueduct have both seen reductions in capacity due to subsidence, land sinking as we pump out more groundwater, which has in part collapsed certain sections of these canals. And so then you needed to put in booster stations or it just wouldn't flow full anymore. Hopefully for these types of projects, we can get some state funding and potentially some of the infrastructure funding that has been just passed in Congress. But I would say for the mindset question, particularly policy and water law questions, like how to obtain a permit to use excess surface water, for example, is a big question that a lot of landowners just don't want to deal with. So then it's a question, can they partner up with a water district or GSA that is applying for the permit for them? And they are just going to be one of the participating landowners. To give you an example, I have been working with the Omuchomi Hartnell district along the Kasemnes River. They have been pursuing a groundwater research program for probably five years now. They have over a thousand acres ready and standing by for receiving water. The people involved have submitted an application for a temporary recharge permit. So that's like a permit that allows you to divert surface water within a 180-day window from the Kasemnas River onto the land to recharge it. The permit was submitted well before the winter in November. We still have not heard back from the State Water Board. And as long as we don't have the permit, we can divert water for recharge. Now, the window is closing at some point. The temporary permit only allows you to divert water between December 1st and I believe it's like March 1st. 
And then we have to let the water go to support environmental flows and aquatic species that are going up the river for spawning. And that's frustrating because people invest time, they invest money, they're ready, they want to do something good, but then you're waiting for paperwork. Absolutely. Wow. And frustrations abound when you look at both the physical infrastructure as well as some of the policy hurdles in getting things approved. I apologize for oversimplifying things, but it just seems that I get two very different answers. When I talk to growers about the future of water in California, their first inclination is to always talk about above ground water storage and more reservoirs. And when I talk to researchers, they talk groundwater recharge. Where do you see groundwater recharge either in a dedicated recharge basin or in fields fitting in with some of the other solutions going forward? This is probably a discussion that's not going to be solved in the next couple of years, but maybe through state legislature action, we might see some movement on this topic. Yes. For decades, we have stored water above ground behind dams where it's nicely visible. Everyone can see it. (laughs) It's like, you know, checking your bank account. You can look at it and it's still there. And if the water level is dropping, we know, well, we might be running short a little bit this summer. A good colleague of mine, former faculty, Graham Fogg, actually raised a really interesting point. And he said, like, when did we start thinking about that water could only be stored on the surface of the earth? While the majority of our water reserves can really be found underground, the amount of surface water we have available in the world above ground is much, much smaller than what is stored in our groundwater aquifers underground. And so why are we not using that system? Because obviously we are using the system. We are pumping groundwater out of the Central Valley alluvial aquifer which can hold a lot more water than what we can store in surface reservoirs. So if you really think about it, the insistence that we can only store water in surface reservoirs does not seem very logical at times. But we are also running out of places of where we can put reservoirs. And the other thing we're running out of is money. Most reservoirs, particularly here in the Western United States, were built through a federal funding made available by Congress, that's very unlikely to happen again in the next coming years. You've seen the fight around the infrastructure bill. So when do we think we're going to get billions of dollars to build another five to 10 reservoirs? But it's also in the picture of climate change, particularly, air temperatures are slowly rising, which often means also the drying power of the air, the air sucking more moisture out of soils, out of vegetation, to the extent that vegetation is so bone dry, even in the spring after a winter rainy season, supposedly, that any little spark will set it on fire. So having water sit at the surface, you will lose it just to evaporation. When storing water underground, you won't have that loss to the atmosphere but we can't see it. And that makes some people nervous. (laughs) That's a really interesting point about the psychology of being able to see that bank account versus it going to groundwater and taking someone's word for where we're at. Such a great point about 
those losses from evaporation with above ground storage. And that absolutely echoes a point that came up this past year when Phoebe Gordon interviewed the UCLA climate scientist, Daniel Swain. He talked about with a warming climate, what an incredible suck it is with evaporation and transpiration going forward and what we've already had with such hot summers. So I think that point about that potential loss of water in our above ground storage under a hotter climate is something I certainly hadn't been thinking about and a really, really brilliant point. To touch on that a little bit more, I think this has been particularly pointed out in the last two years. Last year, for example, we had a little bit of a winter snowpack. It disappeared. Not much of that snow ended up as stream flow in rivers or ended up as water in the reservoir. It just disappeared in the mountains and most likely just going up into the atmosphere. That has led scientists to the conclusion the same amount of precipitation that is falling now, potentially in one year, is not going to get us as far in terms of water yield available for irrigation or environmental flows as it has 60, 70 years ago. So we have to become really smarter about the very few drops of water we are getting every year. So why would we want to give more away by storing it in large lakes that have a very large surface area and can evaporate it? One argument might be that some people say, well, we need that cold pool storage that we have in reservoirs to make releases during the summer months for fish, for example. But unfortunately, that water in those reservoirs is warming up too with climate change and is not a guaranteed solution to save our fish populations in the summer. What might save them is if you actually connect the groundwater back to the rivers which have been disconnected for many years and decades in many rivers in the Central Valley. And you might get cooler return flow of groundwater into streams in the summer months. But we're far away from accomplishing that. Really interesting point about the temperatures there in our above ground storage and in our streams. Helen, do you have any final closing thoughts or anything you want to share that we didn't touch on? Every year I go into the winter season hopeful that we will have above average precipitation. That's my goal for every winter. (laughs) I am probably like many others, nervously watching the precipitation station index that the Department of Water Resources is printing so nicely. (laughs) And we are below average at this point. So most likely we won't see much excess water for recharge this winter unless the precipitation or the weather situation is changing anytime soon. It looks like it started out great, but might be ending on a dry side. And then we are looking at below average reservoirs again, most likely surface water curtailment, most likely more groundwater pumping. Recharge is not going to be the solution to our water problems. It's one component, one potentially important component if we can wrap our arms around it. But we also have to really tackle the tough question, which is potentially cutting back on water use, not just in urban areas through volunteering to switch off your lawn sprinklers in the winter, and you should right now, but also agricultural communities have to think about potentially cutting back on water use. And that is, that's a tough one because that impacts economic return and jobs, but 
yeah, we have to take a critical look at that question too. Yeah, let's let's pray for some good rains that don't all fall in one atmospheric river. But yeah, let, let's hope for some good continued rains here in 2022. Well, Dr. Helen Dalkey, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate and I'm just so impressed with this incredible research you've been doing. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Growing the Valley, a UC A&R podcast. You can find out more about this episode at our website, growingthevalleypodcast.com. We'd like to thank the Almond, Pistachio, Walnut, and Prune Boards for their support. We'd also like to thank my sister, Muriel Gordon, for writing and recording the theme music.